Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of September 21st, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. 98th Harvest Festival. Festival fall brought fall fun to Clear Creek Valley Park by the Arvada Press. Arrest made an arson spree involving 10 to 12 dumpster fires by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Remembering 9-11, first responders public take part in Red Rock's stair climb to honor fallen firefighters by Deb Hurley Brobst. Golden looks to contract a parking management company by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Goldenite Corner hiker keeps bronzed boots to commemorate 14ers feet by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Arvada celebrates fall with 98th Harvest Festival by Lillian Fugle. After yet another move, the 98th Arvada Harvest Festival returned from September 8th through 10th, bringing food and festivities to celebrate fall. The festival was held at Clear Creek Valley Park this year with the parade hosted on 58th Avenue. Last year's festival was held on 58th alongside the parade with previous festivals before the pandemic held in Old Town. The switch came after discussions between the city of Arvada and the festival's organizers, the Arvada Junior Chamber Foundation, or JCs, about moving the festival back to Old Town. Disagreements between the JCs and the city about how the festival should be organized led to the festival moving to Clear Creek Valley Park. It went really well, Jude Teeter, chair of the Harvest Festival Committee, said. The music was amazing. The bands were wonderful. We had a lot more family than we expected. Despite the move, the festival retained many of its usual celebrations, kicking off the weekend on September 8th with a petting zoo and movie in the park. On September 9th, the Grand Parade made its way down 58th Avenue with many local businesses, schools, and organizations strutting down the street. The following day, festivities wrapped up with a car show and pie-eating contest. Throughout the weekend, food trucks, live music, and vendor booths filled the park. I'm thankful for all the people that supported us this year at the new location, Teeter said. Hopefully, they'll come back next year to give us a chance to do it better and keep it going. With the new sites, we are still working out the logistics and placement of things, but we have a better idea of how to configure the festival next year. Arrests made an arson spree involving 10 to 12 dumpster fires by Riley Dunn. Arvada police arrested a 28-year-old man they suspected of starting between 10 to 12 dumpster fires beginning on July 23rd. The dumpster fires have all occurred in geographic cluster around 57th Avenue and Wadsworth Boulevard. Trevin Everett Taylor was arrested on August 26th 
after APD in Arvada fire, fire responded to a fire behind a business located in the Arvada Marketplace strip mall on the 7400 block of 52nd Avenue. As firefighters worked to extinguish the fire between a building, a dumpster fire broke out between an adjacent building. Both fires were extinguished and resulted in property damage, but no injuries. APD's K-9 team tracked Taylor to the 7500 block, 52nd Avenue, where he was taken into custody. Police claim Taylor confessed, quote, to several dumpster fires in Arvada after he was arrested. However, police have not charged Taylor in the recent dumpster fire behind the Arvada library that was caught on camera and circulated by local news outlets. APD spokesperson Dave Snelling said the department did not know if Taylor is behind all of the recent fires. Without a confession, we can't say for sure if they were all related, but we've had 10 to 12 similar cases recently, Snelling said. Quote, they're in dumpsters. They're in a similar area geographically. Snelling said that the quality of the library fire video was too poor to say if the man on camera is Taylor. We are not sure if that is the same person in the video, Snelling said. Taylor didn't admit to starting the fire, and the quality of the video prevents us from being able to definitely say that's him. Since Taylor's arrest, we have not had any more similar dumpster fires, Snelling continued. We have had a couple of incidents of materials ignited near parks, but we're unsure if they're related. Taylor's currently in custody at the Jefferson County Jail. He has been charged by the first judicial attorney's office with multiple counts of felony arson. According to a background check, Taylor does not have any prior criminal charges. Remembering 9-11, first responders and public take part in Rock, Red Rock Stair Climb to Honor Fallen Firefighters by Deb Hurley Brobst. Duty, dedication, sacrifice. Those words describe the firefighters who worked to save Americans after the terrorist attacks on New York City at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania on September 11th, 2001. Remembrance, honor, reflection. Those words describe the more than 2,000 first responders and others who participated in the 15th annual Colorado 9-11 Memorial Climb at Red Rocks Amphitheater on September 11th. Stair Climb organizer Sean Duncan of West Metro Fire Rescue told the participants they didn't have to complete all nine laps around the amphitheater that represent the 101 flights of stairs firefighters climbed on 9-11 in the Twin Towers in New York City to rescue people trapped in the buildings before they collapsed. This is not a race, Duncan told them. It's okay to pause, to sit and reflect. This event is more about getting together and remembering. West Metro Fire Chief Don Lombardi told first responders and attendants to be diligent and take pride in the work they do. It is imperative that you are ready, like the 343 firefighters of FDNY, the New York City Fire Department, who lost their lives, Lombardi said. He asked everyone to remember what the country was like after 9-11 and when everyone banded together and became one. We can honor those who lost their lives by having more grace with each other and coming together as a nation, Lombardi said. We are strong when we are one. 
Members of the Warren Tech Fire Academy class who weren't alive on September 11th, 2001, decided to participate. Warren Tech schools, <clears throat> Warren Tech students come from high schools across Jeffco. And these high school juniors and seniors said they were compelled to participate to honor the firefighters who lost their lives on 9-11. I feel we have to be here, Landon Hines, a Green Mountain High School student, said. For us to walk in the stair climb doesn't begin to honor their sacrifice. Brendan Brownlee, a student at Ralston Valley High School, added, We are honoring heroes. Kara Cooper, a retired member of the Genesee Fire, was a pilot on 9-11 and served on the fire department for 15 years, retiring in 2018. She participates in the stair climb to honor people who try to save others, not just on 9-11. She hoped to make all nine laps around the amphitheater, adding, laughing, that she's never tried it in bunker gear. Mike Umdor with Foothills Fire was too young to remember the terrorist attacks. However, he added, 9-11 is a large part of the culture of the fire service. Taking part is the best way for me to communicate with my fellow brothers and sisters in the fire service. It's a show of respect. Rock Canyon High School Fire Academy students in Highlands Ranch were excited to get started, and they pointed to one of their instructors, Joe Sapia who they recently learned was a Long Island, New York firefighter on 9-11. And he arrived at the scene just before the North Tower collapsed. Sapia explained that his duties at Ground Zero were rescue and recovery. I always tell everybody that I'm not a hero, he said. Now he said his duty is to spread awareness about the responders who have fallen ill as a result of their work on 9-11, the subsequent rescue operations and cleanup. 9-11 never goes away, he said. Also, as a fire instructor for his high school program, he says his job is to have students experience what it's really like to be a firefighter. He doesn't tell his students about his experiences on 9-11. I don't want them to treat me differently, Sapia said. Battalion Chief Matt Gold with Fairmount Fire said he tries to do something each year to commemorate 9-11, and this was his first time at the Red Rock stair climb. It's important, he said. It's a way for us to remember all the lives that were lost. And it's special for us to, as firefighting brothers and sisters, to come together. Duncan reminded participants that the FDNY showed up on 9-11, knowing that someday would be, that the day, that day would be horrific, and that some of them would not return home. Quote, there were 29 minutes between when the first tower and the second tower fell. Duncan said, they saved 20,000 lives, a lot of them knowing they would not make it out of the Twin Towers. They knew their firefighter brothers were lost, and they still continued to climb those stairs. For Evergreen Fire Rescue Assistant Chief Stacy Martin, participating in a remembrance every year is important. She said of the 9-11 Memorial stair climb, it never gets easier or old. Golden looks to contract a parking management company by Corinne Westman. Like Morrison in Idaho Springs, Golden might have a company start managing all its parking permits, paid lots, enforcements, and related operations. City's asking company interested companies to respond to its request for proposals by mid-October. The hope, 
Staff members explained is to sign a contract in November so the company can implement its system January 1st. According to Steve Glick, assistant to the city manager, Golden's vendor contracts with the Park Mobile app and parking kiosks operator renew each calendar year. So, terminating those contracts December 31st and implementing a new system January 1st would be ideal, he said. During a September 12th City Council work session, Gluck said several Colorado communities have implemented similar systems as it cuts down on city expenses while bringing in similar or more revenues. For instance, according to the Clear Creek Current, since Idaho Springs contracted Interstate Parking Company of Colorado in 2019, it's shared revenues 50-50 with Interstate Parking, taking on all expenses. Cook said the city could receive proposals that would share revenues between the city and company based on a percentage or a specific dollar amount. He said staff members are open to either arrangement. These companies do in a fashion that's more effective and customer friendly, Gluck said. They're much more attuned to the day-to-day -day operations. The city's current parking system is decentralized and is essentially cobbled together with different systems and vendors, he said. So having one company handle everything would be easier for users and the city, Gluck posited. In terms of net 2023 revenues, Gluck said the city anticipates is anticipating about $225,000 across its paid parking areas, parking tickets and residential parking permits. On the expense side, while Gluck didn't have the exact amount, he said the city's biggest operational cost is code enforcement and staffing. It also operates and maintains the parking garages, surface lots, and related signage, and uses license plate reader technology and other equipment. If Golden signs a parking management company, the contractor would be responsible for code enforcement downtown and in special permit zones. Other issues would still require Golden officers, Gluck clarified. Ideally, he continued, having a contractor helping with parking enforcement would free up some of Golden's code enforcement officers for creek patrols and other duties. He said the division is usually short-staffed and loses a lot of seasonal personnel in August. However, he said, it's that under a contractor system, the city might downsize its code enforcement division in the future. What can we do to improve? The city councilors said they've heard a lot of complaints about its paid parking system over the years as residents and visitors struggle to use the QR codes, download the app, and or complete the transaction. Even though the app is supposed to remember previous users, some have complained that they have to input their data each time. The complaints I've heard aren't about the price, it's about the transaction, Councilor Bill Fisher said. Thus, most of the councilors agreed staff should proceed with the RFP process. Also, while nothing was finalized, the councilors also discussed other changes to the city's current parking system, such as how downtown employee parking permits are handled, whether downtown should be paid parking all week rather than Monday through Friday, and whether the city should increase its parking rates or fees. Whatever changes the city moves forward with, city manager Scott Bargo said it'll engage with residents in the business community first to hear their challenges and ideas. 
We want to understand how we can make parking in Golden more user-friendly, whether that user is an employee, resident, business owner, or visitor. Vargo stated in a September 13th email, what can we do to improve our communications and education efforts? Goldenite Corner, Hiker Keeps Bronzed Boots to Commemorate 14ers Feet by Corinne Westman. Exactly 43 years ago, Golden's Jim Kloss was standing at the top of Maroon Peak, his final 14er, and the trip to the summit had been a long time coming. Kloss, who grew up in Pittsburgh and moved to Colorado in 1977, spent three years hiking the 54 highest peaks in Colorado. Some of them required multiple attempts, and the climb up Maroon Peak itself was no joke. Kloss and a friend climbed up a Kalor, and at one point, Kloss lost his footing and almost went over. He lost his pack, but he and his friend recovered and then made it to the summit and back down safely. Kloss became the 223rd person to hike the 14ers, according to the Colorado Mountain Club. It was my dream to climb these mountains, he said, and I did. In the years that followed, he commemorated his accomplishments by having the boots he wore bronzed. He contemplated donating the boots to a local museum for public display, saying he wants to inspire others to, quote, push their limits and overcome new challenges, too. The boots represented freedom, independence, he said. I had them bronzed to remind me of the mountains. Kloss has traveled all over Colorado and the world, including six of the seven continents, to hike iconic peaks like Mount Kilimanjaro and the Annapurna Circuit. He's planning a trip to his final continent, Antarctica, in January. Aurora's John Flory, Kloss's friend who's re going with him to Antarctica, recalled meeting him while hiking in New Mexico 20 years ago. The two have been hiking partners ever since, and Flory and Kloss said, have, has a wonderful memory and enjoys making jokes. Although Flory said his friend will climb any mountain, he acknowledged Colorado's peaks will always be special and feel like home. It's heaven, as far as I'm concerned, Flory said of Colorado. I think Jim feels the same way. See where your limits are. Kloss grew up in Pittsburgh and went to school on Grandview Avenue, where he joked that he spends 90% of his time looking out at the view. That spurred him on his love of being up high, he said. On June 15, 1972, Kloss and his friends were visiting Colorado for the first time, and they drove up Mount Evans, now known as Mount Blue Sky. That was a great view, he said, describing how that was the moment he became hooked on Colorado. However, he couldn't move just yet as he went into the Navy and became a navigator. But once he left in 1977, he moved to Colorado in early September. He bought his now bronzed boots from a store on Denver's Colfax Avenue. And in 1978, he officially started his endeavor to hike all the 14ers. In his 14ers book, he kept a record of all his attempts and summits. By the time he retired his boots in 1981, he'd hiked all the 14ers in them plus other peaks like California's Mount Whitney and Washington's Mount Rainier. The right boot's toe was busted open 
and both shoestrings were broken and re-knotted several times, he said. Kloss held on to his boots, though, and had them bronzed in the mid-1980s when he was living in New York. He saw an ad for a shop that bronzed baby boots and asked if it had bronzed his hiking boots, too. He turned them into bookends, keeping them as a reminder of Colorado while he, quote, moved all over. Flory thought the bronzed boots were a unique and wonderful reminder of his friend's impressive feat. Flory's only hiked about 13 of the 14ers, saying some are very dangerous and require rock-climbing expertise. Kloss continued to hike any chance he could and eventually started splitting his time between Colorado, New Mexico, and his travels. He's revisited some of the 14ers over the years and has gone through several pairs of boots throughout his hiking career. He's taking his current ones to Antarctica, so he'll have hiked in them on all seven continents. I'm thinking about getting them bronzed, too, he said with a smile. For his fellow hikers, Kloss emphasized safety. He said people should be well prepared with all the necessary supplies and equipment, and he recommended attending basic mountain safety classes like he did. But whether it's hiking or some other endeavor, he encouraged his fellow Goldenites to expand their horizons and push their limits. You learn about yourself that way, he said. You think, wow, I can do that. And you see where your limits are. Want to recommend someone for Goldenite Corner? This reoccurring section will profile Golden community members and their interesting or unique endeavors, whether that be an event, goal, project, hobby, or life in general. To recommend someone for the Golden Eye Corner, email C Westman, C W E S T E M A N, at Colorado Community Media dot com. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser talks opioids in Idaho Springs by Chris Cobrell. Colorado's share of a $1.37 billion opioid settlement against parent grocery company Kroger will be approximately $70 million, according to Attorney General Phil Weiser. The agreements would only be applicable to states in which Kroger operates, both under its own name or under the name of other subsidiaries, Weiser stated. In Colorado, Kroger owns King Supers and City Market. Dozens of government officials from Clear Creek and Gilpin County joined Weiser at the Clear Creek County Health and Wellness Center in Idaho Springs September 11. City leaders from Idaho Springs, Georgetown, Empire, and Dumont listened as Weiser described local efforts to battle the opioid crisis as a model for other cities and counties across Colorado. Weiser pointed to the Clear Creek Health Assistance Team, or CCHAT, CCHAT, as a move in the right direction. CCHAT is a recently instituted coordinated effort with Clear Creek EMS, the Clear Creek County Department of Human Services and Law Enforcement. The team is underway, running emergency calls with two providers, a community para paramedic and a licensed cl crisis clinician. It's always the right thing to have a co-responder program, so we're not asking law enforcement to do work that law enforcement isn't best suited to do, Weiser commented. The AG listened as government's representatives introduced themselves and talked about how the opioid crisis, addiction, and mental health issues have affected nearly 
have affected them or family members. Nearly everyone had a personal story. Weiser listened and shook his head in acknowledgement. Destigmatizing conversations about addictions and behavioral health is critical, Weiser said. Weiser left the meeting promising to take suggestions and recommendations to staff to, for review and follow-up. Ultimately, Weiser commented communication will be key to recovery statewide. We need to be open about these struggles, he said. We need to be able to say it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay not to talk about it and not to get help. Autumn Ushers in The Cool and Creepy. Coming Attractions by Clark Reader. Your favorite Equinox guy is back, checking in right before we officially begin the best season of year, autumn. Now that we're about to jump into the time of chilly evenings, falling leaves, and hearty foods, it's my duty to round up some of the best ways to welcome fall. The spirits of Led Zeppelin returns to Red Rocks. Despite the fact that most people go to Red Rocks to see some of the music industry's biggest names, I love that a handful of times during the season, audiences attend to just hear the music of some of their favorite artists, artists that can't tour anymore. It's like the world's best amphitheater turned into the biggest bar stage around. That's the case with Get the Lead Out, an evening honoring the music of rock, rock legends Led Zeppelin. You'll get to hear top-notch covers of some of rock's most important songs, your Stairway to Heaven, your Whole Lot of Love, and your Cashmere. If you're a fan of the band, like I am, you have... You've no doubt wondered what it would be like to hear some of their songs bouncing off the famous Red Rocks. Now you can know. The concert is at 7.30 p.m. on Friday, September 22nd. Denver's silent film festival returns for enchanting 10th year. Cinematic history is rarely as moving and enlightening as it is when encapsulated through the power of silent film. Many of the best silent films are absolute wonders that hold up even in today's ultra-loud and in-your-face storytelling approach. That's why the annual Denver Silent Film Festival is such a rare treat. It's an opportunity for cinephiles and newbies alike to immerse themselves in the living history and the power of storytelling. This year's festival, held at Z Film Festival, Z Film Center, 2510 East Colfax Avenue in Denver from Friday, September 22nd through Sunday, September 24th, features 16 short and feature-length silent films made by legends like Oscar Michaud, Alice Guy, and John Ford. The screenings will feature live musical accompaniments by performers like the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra, Hank Troy, and the University of Colorado at Denver College of Arts and Media Student Orchestra. Tickets for the festival are available at denverfilm.org. Go on a magical hike at Hudson Gardens. It'd be hard-pressed to think of a better seasoned symbol than the jack-o'-lantern. They're so fun, creative, creepy, and just perfectly fit the autumn ambiance. I know I'm not the only one who thinks that way. Look no further than the Magic of the Jack-O-Lanterns, which is returning to Hudson Gardens, 6115 South Santa Fe Drive in Littleton for the third year. 
According to provided information, the trail features more than 7,000 hand-carved pumpkins. Visitors will get to see displays that will blow them away, including dinosaurs, dragons, a pirate ship, and much more. Entry is timed, so be sure to get tickets before turning up at the trail, and you can dine at an on-site food truck before or after your walk. Secure your spot at the Seasonal Delight at magicofthejackolanterns.com slash Denver. In Clark's Concert of the Week, Death Cab for Cutie at Mission Ballroom. Talk about music made for the season. 20 years ago, Washington alt-rock legends Death Cab for Cutie released Transatlanticism, a magnum opus about the spaces between people in the same year the Postal Service, Death Cab's lead singer-songwriter Ben Gibbard's side project, Unleashed Give Up. A genre-defining indie electronica record that explored similar themes. Both albums were in constant rotation for yours truly and countless others like me. They both breathe beautifully under silently gray autumn skies and have aged wonderfully over the years. To celebrate two decades of changing lives, both groups will be playing three nights at the Mission Ballroom, 4242 Wincoop Street in Denver, 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, September 26th through Thursday, September 28th. Both landmark albums will be played in full at the performances, which also feature War Paint as the opener. So, this is going to be one of the most special concerts of the year. Ticketmaster.com And lift into the night sky at the first glow show. There's something wondrous about hot air balloons to me. Seeing one floating into the sky never fails to awe me. And now a new festival in Inglewood wants to bring that feeling to families all over the metro area. The Glow Show. The Inverness Inaugural Balloon and Food Fest will be held at the Inverness, Denver, 200 Inverness Drive West at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, September 30th. According to provided information, the event will feature a parade of six hot air balloons illuminated across the night sky. There will be food trucks on hand, a dessert station, and four specialty bars like bubbly and bourbon. The night will be soundtracked by live music, and children will have a whole zone just for them. For more information, visit the InvernessDenverExperiences.com. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at ClarkWithTheKnee.Reader at Hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice I'll be reading Clowning for Good by Adrian Michael. From Denverite I'll be reading All Lynn Motel is still set to be a boutique motel but the community amenities have been cut from the project by Desiree Matherin. And Denver could have 12 stories of housing near Denny's on West Alameda. For now, the city is getting temporary tiny homes by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading 
Former inmate Christopher Tanner's medical nightmare costs Colorado $8 million by Michael Roberts. And pickleball construction greenlit again in Centennial under strict new rules by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Clowning for Good by Adrian Michael. I never imagined I would be clowning, said Michelle Gaddis, but I did love telling jokes and seeing people smile. The ability to tell jokes would help Gaddis's transition into an industry that she didn't expect. I had just experienced a lot of unexpected deaths, she said. My favorite cousin in 2013, my mom in 2014, and my sister in 2015. Since it was back-to-back deaths, it was hard to heal in the grieving process. I was asked if I would like to join the clown unit of the Shriners Daughters of the Imperial Court, an affiliate of the Prince Hall Shriners, and I agreed since it was something different, something to occupy my time. Gaddis performs as Blah Awesome, a portmanteau of Blah and Awesome, and has been clowning since 2017. As I started creating my clown image, I thought about my love of plants and flowers, and I said to myself, I want to blossom. I was going through so much, and some days I felt blah, and other days I felt awesome. Thus, how my name was created, Gaddis said. Gaddis said it took her four months of studying the art of clowning, gathering props, learning to apply makeup, and piecing together her wardrobe. It paid off when she was awarded Best New Clown in her first year attending the Imperial Convention. Gaddis's daughter, Mashika, has been performing as Rhythm the Clown since 2020. Her clown name comes from her love of dancing. However, she didn't always share the same enthusiasm as her mother. I wasn't interested in clowning, Mashika said, but I gave it a shot and our first appearance went great. We had so much fun, so I stuck with it. The kids we met were so happy to see us. We had lots of interaction. It was great to brighten people's day. And that was so rewarding. Both Michelle and Mashika enjoy seeing people gravitating to them as clowns. We're bringing energy in life. Putting smiles on somebody's face just makes the world of a difference. There's so much negative stuff going on in the world, and it's best to bring positivity, Michelle said. Blah Awesome and Rhythm attended the 6th Annual Aurora Day Backpack Giveaway in August, where they were able to showcase the energy and positivity that brings so many smiles to kids and adults. They helped pass out backpacks, taught kids how to do the Cupid Shuffle line dance, and took lots of photos with kids. Their appearance was to make sure the narrative of clown changes. Horror movies such as It and Terrifier have contributed to the fear of clowns. In an October 2014 article in The Hollywood Reporter magazine, Clowns of America International President Glenn Kohlberger said, Hollywood makes money, sensationalizing the norm. They can take any situation, no matter how good or pure, and turn it into a nightmare. And we do not support in any way, shape, or form any medium that sensationalizes or adds to cholerophobia or clown fear. According to a 2022 study published in the International Journal of Mental Health, About 53.5% of adults suffer from coolrophobia, an extreme fear of clowns. We do get people who tell us they don't like clowns, but as time goes on, they get closer to us, said Michelle. My cousin was afraid of clowns, 
and upon learning I was going to be a clown, told me to make sure my energy is right. Clowns are spooky, and their energy isn't always good. So, we listen to upbeat music when we're getting ready. We get into our zone, dance, and have a good time just so our energy projects that we don't want anyone to have a phobia of clowns. Both Michelle and Mashika want people to know that they're not evil people. Don't be afraid of me. I'm a person, and my clown attire is a persona, said Mashika. Along with the changing narrative of evil clowns, there's also a stigma that there aren't many female clowns. There are only women in our clown unit, said Michelle. I never thought about it. There's men when we go to conventions, but within our unit, it's just women. Growing up, I don't think I knew of a woman clown, but now there are a lot of them. According to the online recruitment service Zipia, 61.5% of clowns are women, 36 being women of color. However, only 10% of that makeup is black or African American women. There was a little black girl that I saw today that told me she wants to be a clown. She was so adorable, and I told her I would love to have her learn to be a clown, said Michelle. It's a great feeling knowing we could change the world with this. We're changing the narrative and making clowns more positive for black girls to see, Mashika said. At one point, it was frowned upon for people to be clowns. But when I tell people that I'm clowning today and they see it, they'll say such things as, that's cool, or I didn't know that was you, and it's a cool feeling. For both Michelle and Mashika, clowning is a hobby, but they aspire to do more with their craft eventually. It would be cool if we could set up an event at least once a month and have kids come. I really want to set up a stage for the kids to come in and be entertained, said Michelle. As of right now, Michelle and Mashika are clowns who dance and tell jokes, but they're looking to establish new skill sets. They've also been thinking about incorporating magic tricks and making balloon animals. I'm trying to figure out what's going to be entertaining and have thought about doing shows and skits, Michelle said. We get so many people asking us to appear at events, and I think the more we get out, the more people start knowing us and realize who we are. People see us and say, oh, those are the clowns. The August backpack giveaway was highly successful for the community and brought smiles to kids and adults alike. According to Michelle and Mashika, the moment Blah Awesome and Rhythm arrived, people swarmed to them, and the atmosphere amongst the crowd was extremely positive. I just want to make a difference wherever we can. If we can touch one person, then we've done something, Michelle said. The next two articles are from Denverite. All In Motel is still set to be a boutique motel, but the community amenities have been cut from the project, by Desiree Matherin. Plans to rebrand and redevelop the All In Motel on East Colfax are moving forward, but the project will no longer feature a new building that was meant to be an amenity to the community. On Monday, City Council voted 8-5 to five to amend the 3015 East Colfax Urban Redevelopment Area, which encompasses the motel, to remove an additional building that was supposed to include 27 more hotel rooms and affordable commercial space for community members. The all-in site has been a site of ups and downs, going back to the late 1950s when it was called the Fountain Inn. The historically registered building was host to the Gold Room Restaurant in the late 60s, and in 2006 it was home to the 70s-themed Rock Bar. 
It was purchased in 2016 by Brian Torber, and since then, Torber has had his own ups and downs with the property. Torber initially intended to use the site for micro-apartments, but then City Council member Albus Brooks convinced Torber to keep the all-in as a hotel. Torber previously said that finding lenders to fund the project was difficult because of the idea and the location. As Torber struggled, the all-in continued to fall into disrepair. In 2020, Torber reached out to the Denver Urban Renewal Authority, an agency tasked with identifying blighted areas in need of revitalization, seeking tax increment financing, or TIF dollars, to help fund the redevelopment project. The all-in met several criteria deemed deeming the structure blighted, including unsafe conditions and the existence of substantial physical underutilization or vacancy of buildings. DURA agreed to make the site an urban redevelopment area, and in June of 2022, City Council agreed to the plan, but several residents and council members questioned using TIF dollars to fund a hotel when the city was in need of housing especially considering the all-in accepted housing vouchers for low-income residents or those experiencing homelessness. While Council Member Paul Cashman and former members Robin Nike and Candy, Candy Sidabaka disagreed with the proposal, the other council members and many nearby neighbors said the redevelopment was in line with Dura's main purpose, revitalization. Residents said that the change would make the area safer, by having a pool and retail space for local businesses, residents said it adds value to the neighborhood. Others said having a hotel on East Colfax would give people visiting National Jewish Health and musical talent playing at nearby venues a closer place to stay. The project was set to receive $3.5 million from TIF funding. Torber would revamp the all-in, creating 54 rooms at 265 square feet. Plus, he would construct the new building with 27 additional rooms at about 335 square feet each. There would also be a restaurant, a pool that could be used by nearby residents via day passes, and, potentially, a coffee shop. The project would cost about $31.2 million, but that didn't work out. The firm expected to help finance the project backed out leaving Torber in a similar position to when he first purchased the property. After a prolonged search, Torber found a lender, but it did not consider the additional building and retail options as financially viable. The change to the project required a change to the urban redevelopment area. This particular amendment to the scope of the project may be the first in Dura's history, said Dura Executive Director Tracy Huggins. The new plan presented to Council on Monday only included the redevelopment of the existing hotel structure. Renovation will be done to the 54 rooms and there will be a ground floor restaurant. The amendment doesn't change the boundaries of the urban redevelopment area and Dura is set to give $3.3 million to the project. During Monday's hearing, Council members Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, Chantel Lewis and Sarah Parati again questioned using TIF dollars to fund a hotel when the city is in need of affordable housing. I don't believe that utilizing $3.3 million in city tax increment financing for a private hotel for visitors to our city aligns with our city's urgent needs today, Parati said. To me, it is inexcusable for us to use that funding towards anything other than housing.
Council member Amanda Sandoval said she agreed to the plan in 2022 because the proposed affordable retail and spaces for residents, but without the pool and the extra building, those things wouldn't be happening anymore. When I think of urban renewal authority, I think of community benefits as well, Sandoval said. We're using our urban renewal authority for a hotel and a retail restaurant. I'm 100% supportive of adaptive reuse, but using an urban renewal authority for that outside of not having affordable commercial space designated for use by local businesses, artists, and nonprofits, that's what we approved. Huggins said even if the initial project only included the hotel, Dora would have still agreed to make the site an urban area redevelopment because the area is blighted. Blight doesn't have a tendency to stay within the four corners of the properties. It impacts the other areas as well. So the most significant benefit that this redevelopment will provide is that of blight elimination and historic preservation, Huggins said. The most fundamental thing that we are trying to do is address the, and this is the term out of statute, the blighting conditions. We would have looked to participate if we can eliminate blight. That is our core mandate. Sandoval also asked Torber what he intended to do with the space where the other building was to go. He said a portion would remain a parking lot and the other portion he would like to activate as a community outdoor space. Torber said the area will be landscaped and added that folks could hang out in the green space. Sandoval pushed back, noting that the location of the hotel directly on East Colfax isn't that inviting of a street to sit and relax. Torber said the goal isn't to keep the space as a parking lot, and in the future he would consider putting a new building there, if the finances were available and if the community was interested. Our intent is to stabilize this corner and do something that we are able to do today, and then work with the community on imagining what else is suitable in that area. Torber responded. During the public hearing, about nine people addressed council with only one person speaking against the project. Nearby neighbors spoke in favor, especially considering the property is still experiencing deterioration. I was disappointed when the original plans fell through. However, I think the smaller footprint would in some ways serve the neighborhood better, said one of the speakers. This particular property is as other people have said, really a blight on the neighborhood. It's in disrepair. It's boarded up. It's fenced. I do support the redevelopment generally, and I think this project will return this building to its original character. Other speakers echoed concerns about safety surrounding the property and the need for local accommodations on East Colfax. Huggins added that Torber, in the future, could add that additional building. If he requires TIF dollars for the funding, the plans would have to come back to City Council for approval. If Torber uses private dollars, he could move forward with the build without approval. At the end, Gonzalez Gutierrez, Luis Parati, Sandoval, and Councilmember Flor Alvidrez voted against the proposal. Huggins said getting the amendment approved by Council was the final step for the development project. Now they're ready to move forward and construction is expected to begin by the end of the year. This is a really important project for this section of the corridor in order to help advance a more broad revitalization, Huggins said. Denver could have 12 stories of housing near Denny's on West Alameda. For now, the city's getting temporary tiny homes.
by Kyle Harris. Next to the Denny's in Baker sits a half-acre empty patch of concrete that's zoned for big things, up to 12 stories of residential units that could include hundreds of permanent homes. Under Mayor Mike Johnston, though, the parking lot that sits in the highly trafficked armpit of West Alameda Avenue and Interstate 25 will, for now, likely be used for the small and the temporary, one of his micro-communities, part of a larger plan to house 1,000 people currently living on the streets in a mix of pallet homes, tiny homes, motel rooms, and rented apartments by the end of the year. In many cases, these new homes will be short-term solutions as people wait to move into income-restricted housing that is scarce in Denver. Some people may make the transition. Others may move back to the streets. SEH, a Minnesota-based employee-owned engineering, architecture, and planning firm that specializes in working with governments to help solve complicated problems, has submitted concept plans to the city. The company has not responded to requests for comment for this story. The concept plans are a first-step proposal, works in progress to send to the city's Department of Community Planning and Development to determine what's possible on the land. The documents are subject to change. The submitted plans offer two possibilities for the community. One includes 40 pallet shelters with a community building. The other includes 21 temporary managed community units plus three accessible units and a meeting house for people to gather, along with two areas for dogs to relieve themselves. Both options would be temporary, fenced in from public view and given top priority by community planning and development. The agency is allowing projects submitted under the Mayor's Homeless State of Emergency Plan to jump the line ahead of market rate projects in the permitting process. A building up to 12 stories on nearly half an acre of land could provide a lot more needed housing than a few dozen tiny homes. For comparison, Flora, a 12-story building on a half-acre lot in the Rhino Art District, boasts more than double the number of units the micro-community could hold. In total, 92 apartments, along with 15,000 square feet of commercial space. The Colorado Department of Transportation lot is adjacent to other empty parcels owned by other private property owners. If all of the lots were purchased by a single developer, a 12-story building on the site could conceivably include hundreds of units. Unless such a building were publicly financed as deeply affordable housing, it wouldn't make a huge immediate impact on Denver's homelessness emergency, though even more market rate supply would likely help stabilize long-term rents, which have been rising in recent years. And building in Denver isn't fast. Negotiating the sale of the land, the design and permitting of the building, and construction could take years, and as the Johnston administration sees it, people living in public spaces need housing now, even if it's tiny and temporary. Kathy Alderman, a spokesperson for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, says the city would be smart to find nonprofit developers who could create a plan for the state-owned plot of land in the next, next 18 months while it's being used as a micro-community. They could use it in the interim, but with the goal of converting it into affordable housing for people exiting the cycle of homelessness, maybe even the very people who were living in the micro-community there, Alderman said. The following articles are from Westward. 
Former inmate Christopher Tanner's medical nightmare costs Colorado $8 million by Michael Roberts. In 2021, Christopher Tanner sued six employees of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, a state jail facility, over the outcome of a medical crisis he suffered on their watch. His suit claimed that the medical team's delayed and inept response to bacterial pneumonia that struck while he was incarcerated nearly killed him, and doctors ultimately wound up amputating most of his hands and feet. Two years later, the Colorado Department of Corrections has agreed to pay $8 million to settle the complaint, and Tanner finds the decision appropriate. I'm glad that Colorado has ultimately taken responsibility for the dismissiveness of the medical staff in regard to my need for help, he says. I think that the majority of the public that have no experience with the criminal justice system would be shocked to learn how incarcerated people are often treated. The settlement, which was approved September 20th by the State Claims Board, is among the highest in Colorado for a case involving an incarcerated person's accusations of shoddy health care. The total appears to be second only to the $11 million verdict a 2014 jury awarded Ken McGill over delayed treatment for a stroke while in custody at a facility in Jefferson County. Still, Anna Holland Edwards of Denver-based Holland Holland Edwards and Grossman, PC, who represents Tanner in conjunction with co-counsel Matt Laird of Denver's Thomas Keel and Laird, LLC, doesn't want the takeaway from the case's resolution to be entirely about dollars and cents. Settlements like this prove that people do care about these kinds of abuses, she says. Tanner has a history of mainly minor criminal offenses, including theft, that Holland Edwards connects to his being hooked on heroin. Because of his addiction and short sentence, only a few months in length, he was sent to the Denver Diagnostic and Reception Center in January of 2020 so that he could receive drug treatment while serving his time. That March, however, Mr. Tanner woke up with a fever of over 105 degrees, Holland Edwards recaps. He began begging to go to the hospital, and the nurses who were going in to see him seemed to really think that he should go to the hospital too, but they were overruled by higher-ups over and over again. At the time, Holland Edwards continues, the prison system was really worried about COVID, which hit the state hard that month and quickly began running rampant, but hadn't yet started spreading in Colorado Department of Corrections facilities. Only a very few people were willing even to go in and see him, and the ones who did saw that he needed hospitalization. But instead, they only gave him Tylenol and an IV, which doesn't treat bacterial pneumonia. As a result, Tanner kept getting worse and worse, Holland Edwards says. He was passing out and basically became nonverbal. His main caretaker during the 12-hour period during which his condition cratered was his cellmate who was locked in with him, she adds. He had to hold up the IV bag. He had to carry Chris downstairs when he got an x-ray. The whole time, Chris thought he was dying, and he very nearly did. To make matters worse, Tanner says, his loved ones weren't immediately informed of his situation. When I was finally transferred to the hospital, despite the DOC website stating a policy assuring family notification in such a situation, DOC made no attempts to contact anyone in my family, he notes. Indeed, Debbie Tanner, Chris's wife of 23 years, 
didn't learn he had been admitted to an area hospital until he'd been there for three days. And then the individuals who reached out to her were a social worker and a nurse in the intensive care unit, rather than a Department of Corrections staffer. According to Tanner, they called to let her know that his physicians didn't expect him to pull through and encouraged her to get permission from prison officials to say goodbye. Ultimately, Tanner beat the odds, but the cost of survival was high. The medications he received essentially caused most of his fingers and toes to die. In the end, his entire right hand was amputated, as well as most of his left hand and the front section of both feet. None of these surgeries should have been necessary. One of the hardest parts was hearing expert opinions of doctors that reviewed my case, hearing them state that if I had gotten the level of care that I needed, I would not have lost my hands and feet, Tanner reveals. Today, Tanner's life is a lot smaller than it was, Holland Edwards points out. He wasn't supposed to be in jail for very long, and he had job prospects and a job offer. He formerly worked as a surveyor, so he had skills. But now he often has to use a wheelchair. He can walk some, but he has intense pain any time he has to stand up. Nonetheless, he's resilient and works really hard, she says. He likes to tinker with things, like fixing bikes, and he's figured out some workarounds. But with one arm that has no hand, and the other hand only having a small portion of his fingers, he just fundamentally can't do many things he could before. He's plagued by pain, and the amputations get wounds. During his fight to regain the independence he has, he's had to be constantly medicalized. Holland Edwards hopes the settlement, which led to the cancellation of a jury trial scheduled for March of 2024, will allow Tanner to explore other prosthetics and get a house that's retrofitted for him so he can get around more easily and get a car that he can more easily drive. But he wouldn't have needed any of those things if this hadn't happened to him. According to Tanner, the events that led to the amputations should be put in a larger context. DOC has the lives and well-being of so many people in its care, he says, so many sons, daughters, mothers, and fathers. Sadly, many on the staff see those individuals only as offenders. Because of that, the kind of medical care and attention a person can reasonably expect from those caring for him is often not provided in the prison-jail setting. He admits that he made mistakes. I alone am responsible for the choices that I made that led to my incarceration, he says. But I didn't hurt anyone, and I lost my freedom for a time and gained a criminal record as a consequence. I never expected something like this could happen, though. The details are gruesome, but Tanner feels that they should be widely shared. I hope that by shining some light on my case, it might encourage a DOC staff member to take a moment next time and reconsider their actions before immediately disregarding a person in their care that may be in danger just because he's incarcerated, he says. No amount of money can give me back what I've lost, Tanner acknowledges, but this settlement will afford me a real opportunity to begin finally putting this behind me. Pickleball Construction Greenlit Again in Centennial Under Strict New Rules by Katie Cheshire After nearly five hours of deliberation and a six-month ban, Centennial City Council approved an emergency ordinance on Tuesday, September 19th, 
allowing the construction of pickleball courts more than 250 feet away from homes, but with strict rules requiring permitting and noise testing for those located within 252 600 feet. As I said,